I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to Cybersecurity Interviews. This is the second episode in a five-part series on diversity and inclusion. It will be the first of five, and I'm sure I'll touch on it as we go through the podcast in years to come. But this is the second one that's exclusively focused on these subjects, and we're speaking with Chloe Mastagi. Chloe is a chief strategist at Point3 Security. In addition to her passion for keeping people safe and empowered both on and offline, she's also interested in increasing the numbers of marginalized genders in information security. She's a co-founder of Women of Security in Hacking is Not a Crime, as well as the founder of We Are Hackers. Chloe is a keynote speaker at major information security conferences and events and serves as a trusted source for national and sector reporters and editors. She holds a Master's of Science from the University of Edinburgh and a BA in International Relations from the University of California, Davis, as well as a Certificate in Entrepreneurship from Wharton and other professional certificates. In this episode, we discuss the adjustments to conferences from home, feeling unwelcome in cybersecurity as a woman, pivotal moments that kept her insecurity, making real changes in diversity, equity, and inclusion, how biases develop, removing the bro culture and management, changing the perception of hackers, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Chloe, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. And as we hit record, before we hit record, we were talking about, you know, the the challenges that some companies have had. And we were joking that uh, Zoom must be doing pretty well this year. But how have you been handling the uh, the remote work and probably less travel and less time on stage? <laughs> well, I mean... Last year, I think I was traveling almost every single week. I would go to at least one or two or maybe three conferences in one week. And so I remember just my my average sleep was about five hours a day um, last year. And then this year, my average is about, I would say like seven or eight, which is great. That's great. But I remember, yeah, but I remembered at the beginning of this year, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of conferences this year. I guess I'm going to be on the road again. Um and then I had to reject some because they uh, conflict with other conferences. But the most amazing thing during all of this is I finally have a moment to just be around my my friends, my family, um, also be here for my pups. Um, we got a puppy. Um, it was like the perfect time. Like, oh, we have to get a puppy now. This is the time this to get the, the puppy. <laughs> this is the time because the only way we're going to train is if we're around and like Sherlock, which is my other pup and she's two and a half years old now. Um, but she's a Sheba and whatnot, but I had to train her for the first six, eight months of my time. Um, and I wasn't traveling, but then right when I started traveling, that's when like she was already trained. Um, but Luna, our new one. Not not the same. Um, <laughs> very hard to train. Um, very cute. Another Sheba. She's eight months now. So th- that's kind of the good thing. The other thing is that I could be at multiple conferences on the same day all around the world. And that's so cool because I could be having attending a conference in Turkey right now. I can be attending a conference in India or Singapore all within one day. 
And that's the really good thing. The other thing is the fact that now the doors have opened in a sense that those that couldn't attend these conferences are not have the ability to attend them. And that I think is a big bonus is to open the doors for everyone to be able to have access to materials. That's how we build a better industry is when we open the doors for those that couldn't afford it or didn't have the time to travel, now have the ability to um, learn the latest in our field. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I've, I've, I've had the same experience. There's been a couple talk tracks that I've wanted to get out uh, in front of and test different things. And I, it's, it's funny to be able to do, I, I guess probably the same frequency really of, of talks, but, um, you know, be able to kind of test them out back to back a little bit and yeah. kind of get my cadence where it was like, you know, I do something one week and then, you know, it's all the, the lobby con stuff. And then I kind of forget what, how the cadence go the prior week. So it kind of allows me to kind of keep the same rhythm. Um, and it's true, you know, it's, I, my October has, is traditionally a big month for me where my, uh, we have my wedding anniversary, my wife's birthday, my daughter's birthday, friends' birthdays, and I'm I've never been here for all of them in in the last twelve years, and this is the first year I got to uh, be home for a full October. So it's it's the silver lining in these things, right? Yeah, exactly. So how did you kind of get started in what we're you know what we have as information security now? Um, So I was a management consultant um, prior. And then what happened was that there was a time where I was like, I kind of miss being in an office in a sense where I get to be there for more than just one project. Because as a management consultant, you come in, you do projects, you complete it, and that's it. The thing is, is like, I miss having that, you know, having colleagues, getting to know your colleagues, going into an office and whatnot. Of course, this was before 2020, but I mean, um, so I came across a job posting and for a cybersecurity company and the recruiter contacted me about it as well. And I said, well, she's like, have you ever worked in cybersecurity before? I'm like, no, actually, that's the one industry I've never done work in before. And she's like, would you be interested? Sure, why not? And that's how I started. Um, <laughs> and, and the first year was completely um, all over the place in a sense that like, I just did not feel welcomed. Yeah, I thought it was like the worst industry I've ever been in my entire life. The first year, just the first year. What, 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 when all, what made but, it feel, what made you feel unwelcome about it? Like, was it the, the attitude, the people, like what kind of dissect that a little bit more? Right. Um, so I would say that, before the work that I was doing, I was in a lot of humanitarian and also education spaces. And those are like, you know, you have more of that split 50-50 men and women. Um, And then I joined cybersecurity and there was like, where are the women? And that that was the hard point right there was because you look around and all you see are, no offense, but cis white men. And I'm not used to that. I didn't grow up in that kind of area. I didn't ever attended school where it's like that. I never been around something like that. And so when I suddenly walked into an office and and then saw other offices in cybersecurity where it's like pretty much cis white men, I felt really uncomfortable. But the other thing, it wasn't just that, but also um, I was constantly seen as the secretary. 
Mm. I'd be the one taking down the notes. I would be the one who would go get drinks uh, for the people in the office room. I'd be the one who's like, can you dial in? Um, even though it's not my meeting, I would be the one who would get scolded if I didn't take notes when I should have not had to take notes. It's not part of my job to take notes. Um, and so it got to a point where I just didn't ever feel welcomed. And I remember going into RSA conference um, of 2018. And I remember being there and I felt so, so uncomfortable um, where I didn't see anyone who looked like me in the room. And I felt like no one wants me in this industry. Not just that, I was also dealing with like sexual harassment here and there too. Like you would have, like you would go to these conferences and like a man might just grab your butt. They just do it. Or they'll be like, they're like, oh, I have a, it's like, what are you, what are you doing later tonight? I'm like, uh, I'm going home. Oh, let me come with you. Uh, no. <laughs> so there was definitely moments of that. And I just felt like, God, this place is so toxic. Why isn't anyone doing anything about this? Um, of course, at this time, I also didn't know about Twitter InfoSec or InfoSec Twitter. And, and then I, so right when all the doors were closed and I was just so upset and dis it wasn't upset. It was disappointed that in, you know, in the 2018, that as a woman, I still have to deal with these things. Like as if I was in the forties where people would ask nonstop about everything. When are you going to have a kid? You should be thinking about having a kid. I'm like, that's none of your business. The thing is, is that that was the reality I was in is that I had no network of women that had my back or, and even when I had these men that were protecting me and like, and trying to do whatever they can for, you know, for me to thrive in my career, the problem was it wasn't enough because there was still so much around it that I just felt so isolated and alone. And so then I, I did attend a conference called day of she curity um, in June of 2018. And that's when everything changed because I entered a room and it was like 200 women in there. And for the first time ever, I felt I belonged in this industry. And that was the changing point because later that night I went home and I was like, I know what this industry needs. It needs more empathy. They need to understand that this is the situation they are in and they're never going to dig themselves out unless they practice these things. And so I I wrote up a talk. I also created slides. I also made a list of all the things that I want to make sure to accomplish within the next year. So then there would never ever be any person out there in the industry who felt alone and isolated or had to deal with the stuff that I had to deal with on my own. And that is how everything changed was that very moment. Was, you know, kind of looking back on that, what was there also a pivotal person? It sounds like obviously there was a very pivotal moment. What was there, you know, somebody in the room, you know, that kind of gave you that light bulb moment or was it more of accumulation? I guess just, you know, kind of leaning more into that, that time. Yeah. Um, so when I attended that day of security conference before that, I was already in the mindset that I was out of security. I was like, heck no, I am not going to be in this industry you guys gatekeep, you offend me. Like you say, I don't belong here. Um, there's always something wrong with me. That was the, that was the thing was like, you don't feel included. Plus you don't see people that look like you that really does do something to someone. And so when I went to day of security, it was a room full of diverse 
uh, you know, people and that just were tired of the same BS. And that was the thing that was different. And I think that was the turning moment was just attending that conference that I didn't even need to attend because I was already like, forget you cybersecurity, I am out. At that point, meeting those people, hearing some of the women talk about like, yes, it's hard. You're going to deal with this. You're going to deal with that. But thing to note is that you're not alone. And then that was the thing was I, I didn't even know that WISP existed at the time. I didn't know that cyber jitsu existed at the time. And so that was the awakening moment was to realize there's InfoSec Twitter that exists. So I learned all those things on that one day. And I just wish that I knew about all those things right before I walked into the door of my first job in InfoSec. Yeah, it's, in, you know, for someone who's, you know, been, been I think, a, a face of the problem, but not realizing it. And again, why I've, I've decided this, you know, with the platform I have with the podcast and other, you know, engagement, you know, avenues is to talk about this because I, you know, I, I've always seen it. I fought against it but didn't probably didn't appreciate how systemic it was with inside the industry until you start talking more about it and you hear, wow, you have a story like that. And so do you and you and you and you, and you. <laughs> dear God, how, how long has this been going on? And, you know, where I've had you know, very, always champion. Uh, I, I've just been very fortunate to have strong women leaders in my life, a, a diverse background in IT and technology of folks that were Indian, Asian, uh, from the Caribbean that have always kind of fostered my interest for technology. So I, I, to me, it was always just second nature. And I think that's why I ended up taking for granted until somebody said, no, you, you still are the face of it. Even though you, 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 you don't have it in your soul to be that discriminatory, you still represent it by a look. How can you change that? And that's where I'm trying to figure yeah. out is like, wow, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so much larger of a problem that I think that we address in cybersecurity than we address. And when I would hear these stories and people that would work for me that, Hey, I'm not going to have this girl do a forensic image of my cell phone. I'm like, you say this girl one more time. I swear, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, this is somebody who, who's my best manager and you don't talk to people that way. And she was just like, this is not the hill to die on. Trust me. I, I deal with this every day. I'm like, oh, yeah. how is that possible? Cause I just heard about this. She goes, that's the problem. We're not talking about this stuff. You don't hear enough of these stories. And so many people just become numb to it and think that's the norm. So, you know, what are things that can be done to start breaking not only the stigma of talking about, but say, no, this is not normal. <laughs> yeah, I would first say is that a lot of times, a few things, this might be controversial. I love controversy. But uh, <laughs> let's be real. Um, so sometimes when I talk to companies, they're always like, well, I have, there's a woman on my board, so we're diverse. Right. And I'm just like, no, what your, your board should reflect the city that you are located in. In other words, like it's, it's not diversity isn't just about having women. It's also making sure you have folks that are non-binary trans. Um, and also when it comes to ethnicity, I think it's really important is to be aware that if your entire board is white cis men, you have a problem. Um, and no, if it's just one person on the board that isn't a cis white man, you still have a problem. Um, the reality is, is that I do believe that the security companies that are that right now that have like one third of non cis white men, I think that they're going to be ending up doing much better in the end. Um, I think if companies are not there, it's something that they need to start doing immediately because it does reflect on the rest of the company. I, I don't like using the term trickle down, but it is true. There is a trickle down effect when you have uh, better representation at the top, voices are heard, uh, new policies are formed. 
um, in a way that does increase your diversity and inclusion, but also brings about equity at the table. Um, the other thing that you can keep an eye on is looking at your management team. So it's really, really hard, speaking from experience as a woman, to go beyond a manager title in this industry. And that's the thing that I've been wanting to push to change. And anyway, it should be that, you know, whoever is past manager role, you need to look at those statistics. Who is it reflecting? And if it is majority like white cis men, you have a problem. It should be something that is diverse and that you would be able to see people like anyone in the street to have a reflection of when they walk in that door for any role below a manager to look up and see that there are people that look like them, that have their background like them, that they have, they belong there, that they can have a future there too. It is true. Seeing is believing. And unless you take steps to doing that, no one's going to believe it. The other thing is being a marketing commodity. <laughs> this is This is the one that's really frustrating because it's like the one topic that no one really talks about, but when you are like the only woman in the company, all your PR has photos of that one person. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that. It's like, we care about diversity here, here. Let me introduce you to this woman here. Now let me introduce you to this person too. take photographs. It, you suddenly become kind of like as if you're in a zoo and someone's just taking a bunch of photos of you and to try to push and shove that they care about diversity. Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that when you're doing that, that is not a practice of diversity and inclusion. That is a practice of utilizing people for your own good and not taking into consideration what that actually reflects as. So I think that's one of the things that we don't really talk about is that using your employees just because you want to say that you're doing something about diversity and inclusion when in reality you're not really taking the real actions which are there are a lot more um there there are bigger actions to take than just taking photographs yeah i had uh deb golden on from deloitte on the podcast a couple about a month or so ago we were talking about these issues and she said it's one thing to give lip service to diversity equity and inclusion like but there's another thing you have to do it with intent it's you can't just say it you can't just change uh yeah the the stock photos on your website and i've seen this happen where you know i remember there was consulting with a lot of law firms over the last 20 years and i would see the ones that we get hit with some discriminatory lawsuit. It was, you know, legal just, you know, to talk about the elephant in the room. It's not dissimilar than tech in a certain way where there's a lot of that attitude that still carries on. The things that happen, you know, that when you look at, you know, shows like Mad Men, you're like, gosh, that's crazy. I can't believe it used to be like that. I'm like, it's still like that in legal. Like, I don't think you understand, like legal, <laughs> legal and IT still have a lot of that mentality. And it's, it, it's crazy. Like you really have to put more intent into changing it. And like I said, you, you'll see these, these in institutions or firms that would get hit with some kind of you know, pretty bad discriminatory lawsuits. And say, you know, their first thing is like, well, we'll go change all the stock, you know, photos on our website. I'm like, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's an okay first start, but I don't think that that's, you know, that's the parsley on the plate. There's meat and potato you need to focus on. Do you think that, I mean, we're, and that's where I'm trying to start is like, is are there companies that maybe have good intent, but don't know, where to go to get the resources, how to design these programs that maybe want to, but don't even know where to start. So where, where do we orient companies that's to get them away from just doing it, um, you know, for a vanity aspect, but to really make change. So I have a really good example for this. 
Um, I was at a company that decided they wanted to do diversity inclusion training. And so they got this white cis male who was in their 60s to come and talk about how to do better diversity and inclusion. I want to reiterate that this person had no experience in diversity and inclusion at all and showed footage of videos of people from all walks of life talking about various different things. But the video itself was so offensive to the colleagues. Yeah. So offensive. They're like, are you kidding me? Why didn't you just do something that's cheaper instead of spending so much money on this? Is just ask us, which is that at the end of the day is what you should be doing. Is ask your employees, how can we do this better? And it isn't like going to individuals that you're like, oh, you're a woman. Let me ask, how can we do better? Don't do that. Just don't do that. What you do is ask your entire company, how can we do better? And I think that's really important is to ask that. Also create groups where you, um, you have a book club or something and read some literature around this. The thing is, is that just because there is a spokesperson, well, there's a person who, and this happened to me quite often, which is like, okay, you're a woman, let me go to you constantly in the company and get your advice on how to make things better. And, um, and all that. The thing is, is that like, I wasn't paid to do that extra stuff. And a lot of people don't understand that you should get paid when you give advice like that, because otherwise, usually companies, they go to a consultant, they get paid for finding out what they need to do better. The thing is, at the end of the day, it's like, don't go to that person and be like, I need you to tell me how to like how to fix everything without actually paying them for it. Um, I think that's one of the things is that we could do so much better is to kind of stop asking that that person over and over. How do we do this better? Instead, make it more of a situation where you take the initiative and look at books. There are some incredible books out there that really showcase what it's like to be in other people's shoes and different backgrounds. And I think that's a first step forward. Also hearing their personal stories, going on YouTube, typing in how are people feeling about being this way in this background? How has it impacted them in their life? I think that is where you change is when you go out of your normalcy and like look it up. It's going to take time. You're going to have to research it. But I would recommend doing that before going to anyone and be like, how do I fix this problem? And I do think asking your colleagues how to make things better, just in general, wide in the company is usually a good way forward. Yeah, it's 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 the simple ask, right? And it, you're right. I've seen that happen where folks almost corner a person of color or a woman say, hey, we, we, we want to do this. Like, geez, you're just making it worse. Do you not? And it's like probably good intent, but isolating and singling out people is kind of the problem to begin with. Yeah. It, that does not necessarily going to fix it. And so it's, you know, I've tried to learn that too and say, okay, how do I look at this? Not from my perspective, not of, you know, white Doug, let me, let me, let me, let me tell this, this person of color or this person of a gender identity or woman, how they should make me feel. It's like not, no, that again, it's the wrong way of trying to get somebody to fit into a mold. It's really right. for me to listen and really be an active listener. And that has been, it's, I would say it's challenging because, you know, even from, you know, a social norm perspective, being a cis white male for 45 years, you get a lot of ingrained habits that is taking me a long time to unlearn. And I think that's what people don't realize that there's, there's things you just, you don't even realize that you're doing and are those, those types of things that how do, how do we address those with folks say, I get you're probably coming from a good place, but here's, you know, 
here's a better way or like how, how do we coach people to maybe unlearn some of these norms in healthier ways, I guess. Right. I think it has a lot to do with empathy. Um, one of the things that I've definitely have recognized is that there are going to be certain people that think they know more about the world than they don't. In other words, <laughs> the thing that I've learned in life is that the more I learn about the world, the more I feel like I don't know anything. Um, and that's the way that we should be thinking in a sense, because that means that you're open to opinions changing. There's these things called a socially constructed belief, which is basically um, beliefs that you have created based on um, people within your bubble, um, you know, from looking at the news, reading books. So you, you form these beliefs of how the world works, how people are, how these certain groups work um, and how they act and whatnot. But the reality of it is that many of those could actually be very false. And the only way that you can challenge them is if you feel comfortable with being okay that you don't know everything. Also to know that your beliefs may not be true. And that's the hardest thing. I think like humans, we don't like to be wrong is one of those things because I think we're very insecure um, at the end of the day. And so because we're insecure, we don't like to believe that we're wrong about something. And I think that's the hardest part is that those that practice empathy, they will honestly recognize their mistakes, learn from them and make sure they don't do it again. But then there are other people that don't practice enough empathy, I feel like. And those are people that will keep repeating it because they don't see that what they're doing is causing other people pain. And so I think that's one of those things that we have to come to understanding is that we all live in our own bubbles and we all believe the world works in a certain way. When in reality, <laughs> that's, that's not how the world works usually. And so I think that's how it is, is that there's going to be people that are going to be open to it. And there's going to be people that are going to push against it because they don't want to see themselves in a negative light. Yeah, there's definitely, I've seen that too, where there was another recent quote I saw about this, you know, about talking about these topics. And it's like, you know, you don't get to tell me that what you did didn't hurt my feelings. You know, it's like, there's this idea where people are like, well, you know, I didn't want to hurt you. It's not my intent. So therefore it didn't happen. It's like, whether it's intent or not, you did it. You need to, you need to understand that. And you don't get to go back to somebody else and say, well, you know, you're being too sensitive and you, you shouldn't be feeling this way. It's like, you don't have a right to tell people that when you hurt them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm is really interesting is that uh, when I joined point three security, we've been very much about how do we fight these human biases? Um, and that was one of the reasons why everything was created was because we always noticed that you probably have seen it too, Doug, where like, you know, all, all these companies, they want you to have certain number of certs, some certain number of years of experience to be able to hire you and whatnot. And the reality is that totally gatekeeps. That's the huge problem in our community is that we gatekeep. We gatekeep people from being able to join. And so um, one of the, the products that we have, it's a talent screening service. And what it does is that it takes away the human biases element out of the recruiting and puts you into seeing like how the person can actually perform. And this is where it's really weird. And it's not weird, it makes sense. But those that tend to do better on, on it in general, it had nothing to do with the years of experience or a number of certs at all. Um, and if anything, it actually increases the chance of having a much more diverse hire 
which is the craziest thing ever, because the reality is that majority of people that do have certs and years of experience already, they tend to be cis white male uh, because it's so expensive to get certs. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's so expensive. So. Oh yeah. And, and, I think, and to maintain them too, which a lot of people yeah. don't realize is a lot of people will go and say, well, what search did I get? And I was like, well, what ones are you going to want to carry? And you have to present that as a cost to your organization. Sometimes, you know, sand starts could be $400 every three years or retreat, you know, for just reserting. It's, it's an expensive endeavor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that's a huge problem in our industry because we keep talking about diversity and inclusion, but we haven't really seen too much of a change. I mean, we're seeing it slowly each year and whatnot, but we need to start making this more accessible. I think that gatekeeping really is preventing us having that diversity and inclusion practice even stronger than ever before is because we're gatekeeping. We're not allowing people into our industry that would thrive in this industry. I think that's a huge problem is how do we open up these resources and make it you know, where anyone can do it? I think that would fix a lot of our shortage problem of personnel. I think it would help a lot when it comes to uh, challenging our human biases too, because I'll tell you one thing, I still have people tell me like, like, oh, she's not technical enough or she's not, she doesn't have leadership experience enough. And, and it's one of those things that's like really disheartening because I, having to defend yourself over and over is, is one of those things that is so frustrating because you're once again, it's basically them telling you, you don't belong here. And you have to keep defending yourself saying, no, I belong here because I do this and this and that. But still, it's never enough because they already have this idea of your background to be like, you don't belong here. And I think that's a huge problem we're still dealing with. Yeah, there, there's a lot of preconceptions. You know, when you look at HR hiring profiles for folks in cybersecurity, I, I don't think people spend enough time realizing where, where they do turn people off, you know, the types of things they ask for. We joke around it about saying, you know, uh, somebody wants, you know, a CISP and 15 years of experience and carry a $5 million book of business. It's like, okay, yeah, that everybody wants a unicorn. Um, but where, where do we make things more, uh, you know, foundational? And I think that's the problem. And, and you touched on something too that, that I've been struggling with, with seeing this, and this happens with, with across the spectrum of diversity, inclusion of, of, particularly with neurodiversity is management. You know, there's a lot of people that don't follow the traditional management paths. I think a lot of those molds have been, oh, somebody who can do sales and carry a book of business or be customer facing and not everybody has it in them. And to amplify that, I think a lot of what has occurred and I've been parts of this too, and this is part of the problem is like, well, if you're going to get to that level of being, um, you know, an extrovert and being out there, well, then you need to go out and drink and carry on and go to strip clubs and all this, that old boys mentality of blowing off steam. And that's how, that's where the real business gets done. Yep. Excludes a lot of people. It's not a good, oh, yeah. it's not a good practice. And, you know, I, I it, it's really taken me a lot to reflect on that. I say, wow, this isn't, we've been doing a lot of things wrong or it's not at scale. Like we can't get past this. So we set these barriers for folks to come into management that might have skills that are not just, you know, being kind of an ass around dinner, you know, yeah. it's like, so in that, and I've seen a lot of people that, that are incredibly good technical managers and can manage a forensic lab and a SOC, but might not want to manage a ton of people. They're good with two or three people. And that's an amazing resource. So, you know, what, what are some of the messages we can tell the people for, you know, rewriting some of these management tracks to make them more exclusive so we can get better leaders? Yeah. I would say like, 
I, I love networking, like to a certain extent, I love networking. I love, you know, getting to know people on a deeper level and whatnot. And that's the thing that I enjoy the most is getting to know every single person because then I get to understand more about the world that I live in. However, the one thing that I don't like is when someone knows that they can't control their behavior if they're drinking and continue to drink. That's the problem I have because I've been uh, assaulted twice um, at conferences because of the drinking. And so I think it's really important is to recognize that that is a huge problem is to think when we, like you mentioned earlier, is that we still have this uh, bro-ish type of management style in a sense that like when you go out and about for networking purposes, you have to drink, you have to go to bars and whatnot that you're supposed to go, you know, I have, I kid you not, there's been times where I'm like networking or whatnot. I'm I'm at an event and this happens like with VCs. It's really weird, but there's this thing about hot tubs that I just don't get where they're like, let's, let's meet at this, uh, at this country club. There's a, a hot tub thing and let's all come together. And it's, of course, it's, it's all men except for like that one woman. Of course. And the one woman's like, no, uh, no, I'm not doing, no, no. And the problem with that is then that becomes a hard problem because the VCs are there, all these decision makers are there and being in a hot tub with them is so inappropriate on so many levels. <laughs> and then you lose that opportunity or that window to show that you know what you're talking about. And so I think that's the thing is like, if everyone could just question about their actions, the events, and making sure that it's okay. It should never be a, a situation where you're turned to someone like, hey, is it okay if we go to this place? If you even have, have to, to think ask. that way, <laughs> you know it's wrong, <laughs> just period. Right. I mean, I mean, strip clubs, I mean, come on. Like sometimes they do that and you're like, are you, like I've had guys turn around like, are you okay with going to a strip club so we can keep talking about this deal? I'm like, why are you even asking this question? Of course it's not appropriate. Like, <laughs> and that's the thing is we have to do better. And we can. And again, if it's in for folks that can say, well, you know, that's always, it's just been done. It's like, yeah, but it doesn't scale. And when we look at it to the gate, the gating mechanism that gets put in place, and particularly when it comes to bringing people in the industry, we're, we're constantly saying there's not enough people. And people, we can argue about the total amount of numbers, but the reality is we definitely need more people. Yeah. But if you make it so exclusive, exclusionary to not get the right people in, or just anybody in, because you're you're only looking at this one path of people coming into the industry that look away, look a certain way, talk a certain way, it just doesn't scale. So for me, it's also, yes, I'm altruistic, but I'm also capitalistic. Like I want to say, well, why don't we do this where we get more and better talent and we get more views on things where it's not just us creating an echo chamber and and really get as many people in that we need because we we can't just keep doing this, the sa- things the same way and expecting the same results. And it's not, wor- it doesn't work anymore. Um and, and I've definitely seen that too, where it comes to customers, you know, where more and more my customers are people of color, uh, different gender identities. Uh, it's just, it's not just a white guy sitting across the table anymore. So it behooves people to bring in diversity because you're probably going to be selling to somebody that doesn't look like you these days. And you want to represent that within your account teams and with your support teams and, you know, analysts, because it, it I've had people stay up, stay up straight up and, and buying leadership positions. I'm glad that you brought people that fully represent 
who you guys are and it's not just a bunch of guys. I'm like, thank you. That's kind of, yes. <laughs> I will acknowledge that I did that for, for, you know, for many reasons, but there's always this, I always look for those win-win opportunities as opposed to the zero sum game of, well, if we change this, then we're going to hurt ourselves. I'm like, we have to break that mentality. It's not going to hurt to do something different. Oh, oh, I have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had situations where I'm talking to one of my friends and shared, oh, this one, this is a, this is a terrible story. So one of my friends, he was, he was talking to this group for networking purposes. This was like a year ago before 2020 and the chaos of COVID. But um, basically it was a sales kind of meeting. They were closing a deal with one another. And it's a group of white males, except for him, who he's black. And so what happens is they're like, oh, great. Let's go celebrate. Let's go to this hip hop club I know of. Like just, just straight up. Like the guy was just like, wait, what? And he was like, yeah, let's take it. That's what you like, right? A hip hop club. And he's like, no, I listen to classical music. I don't really go clubbing. Well, let's go anyway. I know all your people like going there. I kid you not. Dear God. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. It's like, it's these little moments where you're projecting people like stereotypes on people which aren't true and like those socially constructed beliefs I think it really hurts people at the end of the day if we don't question it instead like I always do it kind of like this way an example is like just treat them like how you would treat anyone else in your community at the end of the day if you're going out for dinners you know well whatnot ask them do they have any dietary restrictions boom it's so easy just go out for dinner ask what their dietary restrictions are. And then from there, give them a couple um, different places that might be good for food for everyone that matches their dietary restrictions. And then go forward to that. You know how easy that is? You avoid all the problems and you get to know the person as a person and not based on knowing everything about them because of a stereotype. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, human brains are, are very mechanical in that sense where they, they categorize things and bucket things. And we, again, that, that, that doesn't scale well, you know, we have to look at things differently. And one of the things you started to, you know, around these kind of stereotypes is, you know, hacking is not a crime. Talk to us a little bit about that and what, what, why you started that movement. Sure. So hacking is not a crime. Um, basically my co-founder and I, we wanted to change how hackers are perceived by the public because there's still these beliefs that hackers are criminals. Mm -hmm. But it's also reported in the media when they're using, when they state the attacker as a hacker. Um, that doesn't help our community at all because there's, there's a lack of bilateral trust between organizations and also the hacker community because the reality is that they've never probably interacted before or they've never met a hacker before. So they don't really know what we look like. They just base it on the images that they see in the media, which is like, you know, this dark hooded figure. And I'm, I'm actually wearing a black hoodie right now. So I'm totally, <laughs> <laughs> I just looked down and I'm like, oh, oh man. Lives <laughs> playing on the and that, that's the whole thing is changing that narrative because the reality of it is that we have a lot of legislators that don't really know anything about cybersecurity and definitely don't know anything about the hacker community. And until we inform the public about who we are, what we do, I don't see it there ever being changes when it comes to legislative. Um, and the reason is that our current legislation right now prevents uh, good hacking in the same way that it prevents bad hacking. 
So it, in other words, companies can have the right to try to prosecute a hacker who's trying to disclose something that's within scope. Um, and that's, that's the thing that we are working on is trying to change that narrative and to make sure that hackers have rights because they haven't had any rights. And I think it's safer to have disclosure policies than not have any disclosure policies because you're asking to be a threat, in my opinion. Yeah, it's 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 been it's funny. I tend to be a gatekeeper of anything that has my name associated with a company I'm working with. Um, and I will, you know, as soon as I see the word hacker, it's like threat actor, threat actor. And like, why are you always taking hacker out? I'm like, because, and I, I go into the whole explanation, but I'm like, it's just this immediate association that folks have. It's like, oh, if you're a hacker, you're a criminal. Yep. It's like, Pretty well, much. <laughs> now we're exploratory and we can just, you know, say, look back in MIT in the seventies. Like, and I feel like I always have to sit there and do this whole narrative of why this wasn't the case, but it's been part of the truth too. It's just been, look, we've, we've done our own damage as well, <laughs> yeah. you know, but a lot of it too is where, to your point is like, you know, where, where do we, where do we intersect with some of the government and policy people? Uh, you know, where's a good way to help for that advocacy and talk about it. I was sitting at, um, I think it was uh, ShmooCon a couple of years ago, and there was several you know government and hacker co-panels and talking about this. And I found it fascinating because it's like we don't talk about it. And if we don't try to influence that narrative, we're not going to like the outcome if we don't have a seat at the table. So what? how can we as a hacker community get more involved with some of these policy people so they can kind of see us in a softer light? So I, I'm one of those people that I do believe that the only way that we're going to get there is if we cross into someone else's bubble. Um, and I think that's really important is that we change our opinions about people when we meet them. And so I think one of the things is that a lot of legislators haven't met hackers, period. And because of that, they have this rough belief of what has been pushed out by the media today. And the media isn't your, your enemy. They just don't know better. That's, that's the reality of it is like most of the time they don't know there's a difference between a hacker and an attacker. And I think that's one of the things is trying to inform the public that there's a huge difference between the two. Um, I think until we could do that, that makes things really hard. But I do know of hackers in the community that have been trying to you know, work with legislators to try to change where we are standing right now. I know Aaron's Law was something that came about in 2013 um, to try to have a reform of the CFAA. Um, so in a way that it wouldn't prosecute good hacking, it would only prosecute bad hacking. And that would have been something that would have been great to have, but unfortunately didn't pass because of some big lobbyist um, tech companies, that is. Um, because of that, it didn't pass. And so we're still at that same place where, you know, you have to think about it this way. One out of four uh, hackers won't disclose if they don't, if the organization doesn't have a vulnerability disclosure policy. And the thing you need to understand about that is that those that do report it, they end up having to deal with uh, threats, lawsuits, um, and or it's just ignored. And then what happens is that a couple months go down the road and then they have a breach based on that vulnerability. And I think that's one of the things is like we have to be honest with each other is like where we are standing without working with the hacker community, we're asking for breaches to happen. Hackers are there to protect, to serve, to be curious. And they use the exact same skills as those that are attackers. The only difference is the intent at the end of the day. Is the intent to use someone, to abuse something, then 
that's a different situation. And I think it's important is for us to work with the media to change that messaging so then we can open the doors a little bit more with organizations, but also organizations and for the media to influence a little bit more on the legislative side. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not dissimilar to when, you know, look, we're looking with the current kind of COVID situation, you know, we're in those labs, they're, yeah. they're researching how this virus works, how this thing spreads and how, and, and, you know, I look at the same thing with a lot of threat researchers, it's like, okay, well, what, what could happen here? in doing it and giving them the platform to do it without the discrimination in name. But it's also funny. I think organizationally I've had where I've run red team engagements and said, well, you know, let's, let's schedule this for an off hour type of thing. Or when, when it's going to quite frankly be inconvenient for you to do a, a response if we purple team and they're like, yeah, but that's more like what a hacker is going to do. Like we just want to test the system. I'm like you're, <laughs> what is the outcome you're looking for here? I mean, if you're not seeing what an attacker would do and what us as hackers would approach the same problem, then you're really not getting the value. It's just this, idea of like well hackers are attackers and they do things one way but you know red, t- red team and testers do it a different way it's like no we're we're testing the same techniques <laughs> and procedures to see you know what's going to work so i think the challenge is a lot of organizations to even kind of accept hackers as part of their ranks and say hey you know we need that type of mindset to think how can i break this and how would this go completely wrong if the conditions weren't perfect exactly so I guess, where do we go from here? What's like the the one takeaway listeners could take, you know, can take with them to try to say, you know, to kind of really start initiating that change and whether it's diversity and inclusion around gender, other types of stereotypes or just around hackers. You know, what What is it that we can do on a broad scale to really kind of help move the needle forward? Well, first I'm just going to say, yes, we have a lot of issues and yes, it is bad. But the reality of it is that If you take the initiative yourself to look at yourself and to really see how are you helping the situation and how you're hurting the situation, because we're all doing that, by the way, no one's doing all I'm helping everything out. We're also hurting at the same time here. So it's important for us to be, you know, to recognize that we are at fault and at the same time, we're actually at a win. So it's important for us to recognize whatever we need to work on, that we work on it. If someone points something out saying that you should probably work on this and that on something that you don't know what it's like to be in their shoes, listen to them, take action. You don't want to be that person. Um, It's really important is to just acknowledge that you will be wrong at times and that's okay. Um, The thing is, is that we need to constantly question our own beliefs about the world that we live in. And I think that's a good action there. And then the other thing is to keep being informed, learn, go out and learn more about certain fields, learn more about other people's backgrounds, learn about each other a little bit more, because that's how you develop empathy is by hearing more about their personal stories and their adventures. And I think once you can do that, taking action is the next step, but don't take actions alone. There are groups out there, organizations that are taking actions that you can be a part of. You don't have to form your own unless you see something that they're not doing, then that's when you do that. But the thing is, just go and look for organizations. If you're one of those folks that you are, um, if you are, you know, a marginalized gender, there's We Are Hackers, which is basically, we are a global community of marginalized genders that hack at all levels all around the world and we're together and it's free. Everything is free. Um, WOSEC is another one. It's for uh, women and non-binary. 
um, to come together and network in their own communities. Right now it's virtual, of course. Um, and if you want to change the perceptions about the hacker community, you know, there's hackingisnotacrime.org. Um, and if you are an organization that's looking into of how to do better when it comes to working with the hacker community, reach out to us. Um, we are there to be there for you. And if you're looking into disclosure policies, check out disclose.io. Love it all. And I'll be sure to put all that stuff in the show notes. But finally, too, I know you also do some a book club. I'm always a big fan of those. Is there any books that you'd recommend on, on the subjects that people that could be a little eye-opening for people? Like, for example, I found, you know, why are all the black kids sitting uh, together alone in the cafeteria? It's a, long, it's a longer one. But, I mean, you know, when you start reading it from somebody else's perspective, again, you know, you're like, wow, I didn't realize that. Are there similar books that you can, that, that you've, at least you found helpful or at least recommend? Oh yeah, hold on. Let me pull up this list. <laughs> I have a list right I here. I feel like you did. These are, these are again. I I don't ask questions. I already don't already know the answers to. So. <laughs> um. All right. So if you're looking at books and about like women, I would just say let's first we'll start we'll first start with the women one. Um, the women one. I would say there's the Down Girl: The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Maine. Um, she also wrote another one. Um, that's also really good that I'm trying to remember. I think it's called, oh, it's called Entitled. That's another good one. Those are good ones for, um, to learn a little bit more of why women are so upset right now at the world. Um, <laughs> I would say that the other one is if you want to learn a bit more about, am I mansplaining or am I not mansplaining? There's a really fun book called Men to Avoid an Art in Life by Nicole. Um, I'm really bad at pronouncing last names, but, um, the last name starts with a T, uh, but I would recommend that one if you want to learn about mansplaining and all that. If you want to get to know the hacker community a little bit more, I always recommend Tribe of Hackers. It's a series, but the first book gives you a good idea of like all the different types of like blue team, red team, purple team, and all that. I think it's really good. Um, the other good book I would say is How to Be an Anti-Racist um, by... Um, Ibram Kendi. I really, really like that book a lot. Um, there's another one, probably I'm trying to look for it. There's so many books. Oh my God. Um, um, if you want to read about how, how bad it could be in tech for women, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley by Emily Chang. That is really good um, on that front. Yes. Yeah, those are those are the books that I recommend at this time. Those are those have been my recent reads that I really, I really liked, and I always tell people to look into them. I love it, and yeah, and I'll, I'll I have all your links. So I'll be sure to put those in the show notes. Is there any other sites or any other things about you where people can find you that we might not have touched on yet? Um, if there's if you want to know anything about me, my website, chloemissai.com, has everything in there about like in, inside InfoSec and outside of InfoSec. So anything that you want to know about me is probably on that website. Love it. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well. And Chloe, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Awesome. And uh, we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll keep this conversation going. I, I, I love this topic and want to change people's perceptions. Wonderful. Keep me posted if you need anything. Oh, well, thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. 
please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.